0: Anyways, uh, let me start out with, and I just want, again, um, before the service, I was, I've been at three different locations over the past five weeks, and I want to let you know that even at these churches, you really get an appreciation for FOF and, and what we offer and what we have, the fellowship, um, the, the times that we can spend together. It really makes me, um, again, feel like this is home for me, and so I hope you guys, you know, feel the same, and again, thank you for supporting me through my process of this, and just very grateful. So I want to open with prayer, and then we'll dig in. Dear Lord, um, everyone comes here with different weeks that they've had. Some are running into service, some are you know, kind of just mosing in. Others are being dragged in and forced in themselves. But however you brought people here today, um, work through me. Use me as your vessel. Use your words, not mine, to just get across what you want them to hear and how you can comfort and reach them where they're at. So I pray that you just bless this time and op- with open ears and open hearts. In your name we pray. So, the last five weeks, Dave has been going over the five pillars of FOF. And I could take a quiz and say, you know, what they are if you want to shout them out. Um, they all start with ours. So, restart, reaffirm, reconnect, re give, and reignite. But our core mission at FOF is we want to make disciples who make disciples. This is our bedrock, our foundation here our Fellowship of Faith. And it leads into the, the, the verses and, and the parts of Matthew that I want to talk about. And you'll see as we float, go through this. In this passage, Jesus gives, I think, a graduate-level class to his disciples in how to make disciples who make disciples in his interaction with the Canaanite woman. So... Um, The verse we're going to go over, um, and you put it on the screen, it's Matthew 15, 21-28. So if you want to read along with with me, uh, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out loud, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. That's kind of an interesting passage, and you'll see some of the struggles I had with this, but I'm sure that you might share them. I love movies. I've watched movies since I've been little to now. And the technology in the movies has advanced many ways, Um, especially when watching or streaming and moving at home. We have so many options that were available to us years ago. One feature I love is, especially on Prime, is when you pause the, the video, you have little pictures of all the actors that appear in that scene, and then you can expand those, and you can actually get almost like Wikipedia of information. From those little slides and those little pictures. Um, it is helpful for me because inevitably, you know, I recognize one of those actors or actresses that appeared, and I'm, you know, going, I, you can't move on until I figure out what else I saw her in or him in. And it drives me figuring out. I don't know if that happens to YouTube, but it, maybe it's just me. So I'm learning that when I study a passage in the Bible, I found that knowing the background of the main characters in the story brings a richness and an understanding of the significance that has been lost to me in the past. You're probably thinking, duh, Todd, that's why we have commentaries for, and I agree. But what I'm talking about is taking additional information and using it to experience the character's perspective, looking at it from the character's view. So I'm gonna take you today through the process that I've gone through and I'm going through as I study the Bible and really applying it to this interaction that Jesus has with this Canaanite woman. There are three things that I've found that have helped me do this. First, I try to understand the context of the passage by reading what comes before and what comes after. A lot of times you can frame it by the preceding verses and the following verses. Second, I try to understand, to the best I could, the traditions, culture, society, and setting of where the event takes place. Kind of get an understanding, because when we look at things from the 21st century, Um, we we are not viewing them how they were back then. Lastly, and this is the part that I've been learning to do better, is to put myself in the place of the major characters of the story. You know, the truth is, it's not much of a stretch to do this because, you know, if you're like me, we have a lot in common with a lot of the people in the Bible. Time doesn't matter. We're the same. But going back to this verse... I found this story very confusing, especially Jesus' responses to the Canaanite woman. Here's a woman whose daughter is demon-oppressed, possessed, and is surely seeking his help. It starts out, and it seems like Jesus is dismissive of her at best, and at worst, insulting, calling her a dog. It was very uncomfortable to me because it seemed to go against everything that I thought I had understood about Jesus. Then, out of the blue, he commends her for her faith and heals her daughter. This is the Jesus I know. Comfort level returns to green. I sit back. I'm cool. But the warning bells start going off in the back of my head. I realize I'm missing something, and it's important. And I'm going to get to that later, but it triggered me. As I mentioned, the first two things I try to understand is the context of the passage by reading what comes before and after the verses I'm studying in the traditions, culture, society, and the setting where the event takes place. To do that, you go back to the beginning of chapter 15. You find that Jesus is debating with the Pharisees. As was typical of one of these interactions, they were pointing out a small infraction of their rules that Jesus and his disciples had violated. In this case, it had to do with the disciples not washing their hands before eating. You can all pause, moms out there. Um, They're arguing that his disciples are breaking the traditions and rituals. Although from a hygienic standpoint, this is a good practice. There's no basis for this practice in the Old Testament scriptures, though. I guess I wish I knew this when I was growing up, and my mom told me to wash hands before dinner. Hey, mom, the Old Testament doesn't say anything about it, so I don't need to do it. <laughs> so the Pharisees were looking this tradition as a religious duty to emphasize their spiritual purity and spiritual superiority to Jesus. So Tony Evans, who I love, listened to, um, he talks about this with, the, with, with these verses about traditions. And if you go to the next slide. Um, traditions aren't necessarily bad. They typically involve passing on some custom, practice, or belief to subsequent generations. God even provided Israel with many tradi- traditions to follow as part of his law and sacrificial system. But the problem with traditions comes in when they invalidate, cover up, or camouflage or negate the word of God. When you replace scripture with something of your own invention, you're wasting your time in worship on Sunday. And I mean, isn't that the truth? So, um, Jesus, in his counters part of this, he challenges, he sees what the Pharisees are trying to do and counters them with Mosaic law and honoring your parents. And although... To me, it seemed like this interaction was very, very common, similar to what they've done in the past. Um, Right before verse 21, or it starts verse 21, it says, After this, he withdrew um, to the the district of Tyre and Sidon, which is, again, if you look here, I'm going to make sure I'm pushing the right thing. Um, It is right here, and this is modern-day Lebanon. So where Jesus was at, he was in this region, and so he went from here to there. Um, Tyre and Sidon have a rich history in the Old Testament. Isaiah 23 and Ezekiel 28 devote whole chapters to these cities. They are brought up again in Joel chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. I encourage you to look up what these prophets wrote about Tyre and Sidon, but let's just say it's not a travel destination that would have been given four stars. The interaction with the Pharisees happens in a town called Genesaret, which is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, about, or about 35 miles from the city of Tyre. So why is this location significant? Because this is in the heart of Gentile country, where Canaanites live. You recall know, that the Jewish people and the Canaanites have a long and not-so-pleasant history. In Deuteronomy, verse, Deuteronomy 20, verse 16, actually, God told the Israelites to wipe the Canaanites from the face of the earth. So I can understand that little conflict going on there. You know, this isn't some disagreement over, over whether Chicago deep-dish pizza is better than New York-style pizza or the animosity between the fans of the Cubs and the Sox or even greater than the Bears-Packery rivalry. These, there are centuries of bad blood between them, and it could have said that Jesus walked right into enemy territory. To give you an example of what type of people this area produces, we all remember Jezebel from the Old Testament. She is one of the major persons that come from this area. And one last fact, it's important to note, that... This is the only time in the gospels in which Jesus' ministry happens outside of Jewish territory. Think about that. How bad did he wanna get away from the Pharisees and that interaction that he just had, that he would actually go into enemy territory? You know, if there's a positive side, if there was a probability of him being recognized, it was extremely small there. I've had some interactions at work that have been frustrating, but not enough for me to drive up to Green Bay and sit at a Green Bay Packer game. (laughs) When Jesus retreated, Tyre is not a quaint city like Geneva, it's more like a place like Las Vegas. I think I had a good idea of all the background on what's going on here, but I wanted to move to my last point, which is put myself in the places of the major characters of the story. You think Jesus and his disciples' entry into town brings back some memories of the black and white westerns my mom used to always watch. You know the scene. Dusty street, wood buildings on both sides, posts where a few horses are tied, their bushy tails swinging back and forth like furry pendulums, miniature tornadoes of dirt swirling in tumbleweeds rolling across the main strip, seemingly dancing to a carnival of notes being played on the piano in the local saloon. People going about their day, making the best of their lives, not wanting any trouble in this obscure outpost of civilization. Then Jesus and his posse of 12 disciples walk into town. The noon sun beating down overhead, the woman who was casually fanning herself outside the saloon straightens up. Everyone comes to a halt. It was like the town was put on pause. Steve, can you play that next week? (laughs) (laughs) The men stood up, their tan leathery faces squinting to determine if these 13 men meant them any harm. The tension was high and their trigger figures were itchy. Then the silence is broken by a cry and they see a woman, one of their own, running toward the strangers. They recognize the woman, the one with the crazy daughter. So let me introduce the, ta- the characters in this scene. There's Jesus, son of David. He's retreated to this obscure land, trying to get a little rest from his demands of ministry. You have the Canaanite woman. We know that her, she has a daughter that's demon-possessed, and can infer that she has some knowledge of who Jesus is as she seeks him out for help. Um, but that's about all we know. And then you got the townspeople. They're probably in the periphery, you know, on edge kind of knowing a little bit about what Jesus is doing in, in, you know, in um, you know, the, the Jewish colonies or the areas, but they're also probably suspicious of strangers. But I'm going to mostly focus on disciples because I think this is where the story hinges. And so when you look at the disciples, and I don't know if any of you knew this, but the disciples are young men most of them on their mid to late teens. So, you know, we see all these statues of these apostles with beards. That's later in life. But at the time, they're just younger teenage kids, although they grew up a lot faster, um, walking around with Jesus. Probably the first time out of their neighborhoods they grew up in, now in a town mixing with people that they've been told all their lives were below them, told the Gentiles were like scavenging dogs, To me, when I visualize this, I think about coyotes that roam. I think that's how um, the Jewish people viewed the Gentiles. You know, they're probably scared, confused as to why Jesus brought them here, although they're probably trying to play cool, you know, keep a low profile, you know, and get out of town without an incident. And then also, there's another character. It's us. We also play a part in this drama, and I'll get to that. So each of these characters are different, and because of their backgrounds, they all experience the interaction in unique ways. They all have different vantage points. There was a movie in 2008 starring Dennis Quaid and Mark Wahlberg. Dennis Quaid was overseeing security for an event, I think it was a presidential speech. There was a lot of chatter before that about terrorists, and there was a huge effort to prevent anything bad from happening. So one of the things they did was they brought Mark Wahlberg, who was a, de- was a decorated military sniper, and a group of men associated, loosely associated with the government hired him to determine the possible spots where an enemy sniper might set up and get a good shot at the president, or the politician. I don't think it was the president of the United States. The event happens, and of course, the politician is associated as we watch in real time. Again, the movie's called Vantage Point, and for the remainder of the movie, the same event, the assassination is replayed from different vantage points of the characters, from Mark Wahlberg, Dennis Quaid, and you see what they were seeing, because it was different than what we saw. My hope is by retelling the story from what I envision are the vantage points of the main characters, I will hope you get a richer understanding of it. But before we go on, I want to put a disclaimer up there. These views are my opinions, and they're expressed by me, and they do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of fellowship of faith. So, <laughs> we're all off the hook. So, I'm going to take some creative liberty in, in this. So, let's pick up the story where the Canaanite woman is running towards Jesus crying. I'm sure the disciples are frozen when they hear the cries of the woman. I'm thinking at first they're hoping that she's running to somebody behind Jesus, you know, somebody in the background. Probably really quickly find out that she isn't. Their pulse accelerates, their palms start to sweat, and their discomfort level just shot up to like overload, real high red. I'm sure they're repulsed. The scavenger dog would even consider approaching Jesus, their Jesus. As she nears, I'm sure Jesus nods to them, maybe raises a hand to single, oh, it's okay. Which calms them down a little bit, but you know, like bouncers in a club noticing an unruly patron, they're on heightened alert for any hint of trouble. Something to note: Matthew explains that the woman walks up to Jesus. This seems unusual to me, since in all the gospel readings, Jesus is always followed by a crowd wherever he went. You know, people are struggling, elbowing to get close to him, mob. This woman runs up; it appears without any interference which shows you how far out of the Jewish culture he and his disciples were. In the verses that follow the story, you read that Jesus is preaching to over 4,000 people. So when he goes back into the Jewish territory, he goes up with 4,000 people, which demonstrates that Jesus is very well known. But here in Gentile country, he's just a nobody, no one of importance. This is probably the last time he will be able to move around this freely for the rest of his life. When I was younger, I worked at the Rosemont Horizon, which now is the Allstate Arena, and I could kind of get a sense of what Jesus was in my observations, and I think I was the Canaanite woman in this story. Um, there was a boxing match. I was working in a concession stand. Before the fight started, all these celebrities are walking around, and you can see all the posses and all the people asking for autographs up to them. And I just finished a sale at my register, and I looked up, and Walter Payton was standing in my aisle. And many of you that grew up on the Bears long ago knew who Walter Payton is. Um, This was probably about 1981, pre-Super Bowl shuffle, and the Bears weren't that great at the time, so really nothing's much changed. Um, But sweetness was immensely popular. I'm going to try to think if you can guess who am I, a Packer or a Bear fan, Okay. Um, What shocked me was he was just standing at my counter. There was no one around him. No one seemed to recognize him. He was just another customer. So I'm thinking that's what Jesus is thinking in in Tyre. He's just sitting around. No one knows him. Um, I remember he ordered a soft drink and a box of peanut M&Ms. Amazing memory. Um, I needed to go to the back to get the M&Ms because we don't keep the real stuff. We have the fake boxes up front and the real stuff's in the back. And so I mentioned to the stand leader who was a big Bears fan, that Walter Payton was at my register. She gave a little yelp, grabbed a hot dog, and brushed by me to to the counter to ask him for his autograph. He graciously signed it, but the commotion started turning the heads, and the realization of who was standing there spread like wildfire through the crowd. He wasn't anonymous anymore. Walter quickly paid, gave me a not-so-happy look, and disappeared into the crowd (laughs) before he was mobbed. Like this incident with Walter Payton, I'm sure some of the people of Tyre glanced over and looked at the commotion when the woman ran up to him. The disciples, like Walter, were like, oh, great, we just wanted to quietly pass through town, maybe pick up some M&Ms and get out of town without any incidents. Not only did she draw attention to them, but she also did the unthinkable. She addressed Jesus as the son of David. This to us doesn't seem like a big issue, but in that time, for a Gentile to adjust Jesus in this way was unthinkable. This would be equivalent to someone dressed head to toe in green and yellow Parker, packer garb asking Walter Payton for an autograph or a picture. I can hear the collective sucking of the disciples' breath at this faux pas, looking at Jesus to see how he would react. Matthew writes that he did not answer her a word. The disciples probably let out a breath that they were holding since she came up and got in and started trying to hustle her out of the area. Not because Jesus had an issue with this, but they were probably feeling a little uncomfortable, a little exposed, and trying to avoid any big or additional commotion or confrontation from the people that were there. I think Jesus picks up on this discomfort and and responds to the woman, which pauses the disciples. The Gentiles weren't his mission. He came for the Jewish people. Can you hear the disciples sigh with relief after he said this? <sighs> I'm sure they started trying to hustle the Jesus back into the safety of Jews, Jewish territory, but the woman persisted. This time she humbled herself, kneeling in front of him and addressing Jesus as Lord and asking for his help. I'm sure the people in the surrounding vicinity started to get curious. That it wasn't unfolding. Here was a woman kneeling in front of the man that they didn't know, wondering what this was all about. I'm sure some of the locals probably started to wander over to see what this was all about, knowing the woman and her history. This was probably the worst-case scenario for the disciples. What they missed in this process was the woman's second request to Jesus. It was from... The creature to him, her creator. It's what the next part that he says throws me for a loop. Jesus shoots down her third time, shoots her down a third time, and not only does he deny her, he kind of calls her a dog. And that really kind of threw me for a loop. Um, it seems sort of character of Jesus, doesn't it? But in one of the commentaries I wrote, read, dog really wasn't in the sense that we think of it today, like lower than us. Um, one of the commentaries said that it was like a lap dog, a little pet dog that sits on your lap. That's how Jesus addressed. That's what that word means. And I'm like, I don't think that explanation was any better. But I'm starting to think about. Spartacus is our brown and white ca- cavalier. Cavaliers were bred to be lap dogs for royalty of England. Sparty was so cute, there's a picture of him. He had those big, beautiful brown eyes that can melt your heart. He loved snuggling, being petted for hours, and loved begging for food, scraps from the table. He was my wife's dog that she had when we met. Sparty loved sitting next to me because although I didn't feed him, I would rub his head for hours while watching a movie. The funny thing was that even though Sparty was sitting next to me, getting petted, his eyes never left my wife. He lived for the love of my wife, his master. In the same way, I realized I should live for the love of my master, God. My eyes always focused on him. Putting dog in this context is far from being an insult and is actually a term of endearment. And what I found amazing was that this Canaanite woman, a Gentile, eyes focused on Jesus, had a deeper understanding of who Jesus was than the Jewish theological leaders that had read and expected his coming. Undeterred, she throws herself on his mercy by saying that she would be content with the few crumbs that fell from his, the table, his, his table, the master's table. I think Jesus' responses up to this point. We're actually probing to see the depth of her faith. Jesus responds by saying, Woman, you're great. your faith is great. I'm sure all the disciples... They look frantically at each other probably, What did he say? Then to cap it off, he heals the woman remotely, Unfortunately, the story ends here, but I would have loved to be a fly on the wall of those conversations of the, Jesus and, the, and his disciples walking back the three days that it took to get back to Jewish territories. It would have been interesting. You know, the Canaanite woman should remind you of someone else in the Old Testament, Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God until God gave him what he wanted. The Canaanite woman wrestled with Jesus until she got what she wanted. As I mentioned earlier, there's a there in the hostile Gentile territory, I'm sure the Gentiles heard rumors of Jesus, Jesus as evidenced by the Canaanite woman, but only in passing. Being that this is the first time Jesus was in Gentile territory, they probably didn't even know what he looked like, let alone cared about his work. Which begs the question, how did the Canaanite woman know who Jesus was when she ran up to him? but I digress, that's a message for another time. Um, If Jesus, if as Jesus said, he wasn't there for the Gentiles, but the Jewish people, the only Jewish people present were his disciples. Remember, although we read this conversation in Matthew, Matthew's gospel wasn't recorded until about what experts estimate 70 AD, well after Jesus' death. Although Jesus never shied away from controversy, I'm sure the disciples weren't in a rush to recount their time in Tyre. Imagine the scandal and the blowback it would have caused, not only with the religious leaders, but with the Jewish people. I'm thinking this was a case of what happens in Tyre stays in Tyre. Not only for his disciples, this message was, but me. We are all disciples of Jesus. This story demonstrates how the Canaanite woman humbled herself to Jesus throwing herself on his mercy, creation to creature. It's also a demonstration for persistence. This isn't the only time when Jesus rewards persistence. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells the t- parable of the persistent widow. It's a lesson to me that I need to check my spirit as I pr- approach Jesus in prayer. Am I approaching him in faith as strong as the Canaanite woman? Am I persistent as she was, even if he doesn't respond? Are his lack of responses trying to probe me to a deeper faith? As I was preparing for this message, what hit home the hardest was how it exposed the sense of entitlement I sometimes feel as a follower of Jesus. Maybe I'm just projecting my guilt onto the disciples, but I can't think about the beginning of the interaction when the disciples came into and saw this woman, they must have been elevated themselves over them. You know, how could they not? After all, they were brought up learning Old Testament that these people were less than them. They were God's chosen people. They were God's favorite. I'm quite sure that when I, if I was there, I would have had a little self-inflated ego in that situation, thinking about being God's first pick in the peoples of the world's draft. And fortunately, at times, it's easy for me as a Christian to drift into this better-than-you attitude. You also have to consider that the disciples lived lived a fairly sheltered life. They were surrounded by people that were like-minded traditions and cultures. They had little exposure to anyone outside of their small, safe circles. It's a perfect recipe to give rise to the view of Gentiles as being less human coyotes. Elevating myself above others is an alluring trap that takes my eyes off of Jesus and my own unworthiness to stand in his presence. I become like a Pharisee, on the outside looking spiritually pure, but on the inside impure. When I pull away from the world to to the comfort of my like-minded friends, I become a spectator of the fallen world. I become quick to judge blind to the fact that even though I've insulated myself with all things Christian, I'm still not immune to the troubles of the world. I've become numb to the fact that I'm a sinner. I have to check myself. After all, I know about his resurrection. I know how the story ends. I have proof that Jesus is who he says he is. And his message is for everyone, even the Gentiles. But it wasn't until the end of the Gospels, after Jesus was resurrected, that the disciples had the same confidence, i've struggled with pride throughout my life. I got used to being included as one of god 's chosen people i 've enjoyed eating at the big table, the master 's table, eating a juicy steak and the fresh baked bread, you know the table where the server comes with this little scraper tool and scrapes all the crumbs into their hands and put them away, puts them in their apron to throw him away later. I feel like I deserve this special treatment, this honor for following Jesus, just like the Pharisees of Jesus' time thought with the law. Then God brings me back with a thud, humbling me. He reminds me of a time just over 11 years ago on my daughter's Brianna's 13th birthday. Big time, she was to become a teenager. She wanted an iPod so badly And I didn't want to disappoint her considering the turmoil of the last year following our divorce. Her birthday was Friday, and I wrote a check on Walmart late on Thursday for the iPod. I knew there wasn't enough money in the checking account until Friday when my paycheck would be deposited. As the clerk put my check into the register, I prayed the bank verification would go through, which by some miracle it did. For her birthday, Brianna wanted to go to a movie. I'd taken the day off of work because I could only afford to take her and her siblings to the cheap matinee showing. I had to cash all of my change in that I'd saved the last year since my paycheck, which just got deposited, was already spoken for. I had enough to take them to Steak and Shake, a movie, and a little spare change, just enough to buy a large popcorn that we all shared. God reminded me that I was once the Canaanite woman doing whatever it took to make my daughter forget the pain of the divorce. I felt like I was just tossing crumbs to Brianna, but she remembers it as being one of her best birthdays. Things have turned around for me in the past 12 years. I can now afford a burger at Steak and Shake, followed by a movie, still a matinee showing because I like to save money. (laughs) The extra change that I have in the car, I buy a popcorn, Today, I'm not the Canaanite woman anymore. My vantage point has changed. I am now, or maybe I should say, I need to be more like the disciples. We don't hear about the Canaanite woman or her daughter in any other place in the Bible, but we do her disciples. These same disciples, the ones that viewed the Gentiles as scavenger dogs, coyotes, returned to them after Jesus died as their equals without any hesitation, but with the confidence in the gospel message of salvation they brought. Their vantage point changed from theirs to Jesus's, and they ended up leading many of them to the Lord, including me and all of you. These disciples rid themselves of their biases, prejudices, and walked with people that had different background practices and religious beliefs. Just as I need to constantly be on guard from thinking like the pre cross disciples, Being better than others, my life should be lived like the post-resurrection apostles who spread the gospel to all the people without exceptions. After all, we are commanded by God to spread the gospel, not to just the people we have commonalities and are comfortable with, but to the people, to the one Jesus would leave us for, the 99 to retrieve. The one I condescendingly say sometimes that they need to know Jesus. Jesus. These people are different, they're strange. We don't have any shared experiences or align with any of their beliefs. The ones that make us uncomfortable are uneasy. I don't know about you, but I want to rejoice like angels in heaven when somebody I may have had difference with, differences with comes to the Lord, because I know that I was once that strange person that made people uncomfortable, and I had nothing in common with. These are the same people I now call my brothers and sisters, and we have Jesus in common. Lastly, I want to encourage you to persist in your prayers. If he doesn't answer, maybe it isn't the request, but the approach. Maybe I need to swallow my pride, step down from the main table, get on my knees, and approach him again. I need to throw myself on his mercy and be content with his crumbs. Maybe I need to wrestle with him like Jacob and the Canaanite woman did. In these verses, that following this interaction, Jesus fed the multitudes with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, and had so much left over that he could have fed many, many more. This is how God's economy works. What the world, what we would consider leftovers, throwaways, insignificant, he multiplies into a great abundance. I would rather have God's crumbs from his table than a banquet at any table anywhere else. I could live the rest of my life on the crumbs from God's table. At his table, we're all equal. If you bow your heads and pray. Thank you, Lord. This is struggles for me to just lower myself to the level I need to be in your eyes, to live off your crumbs to live off of you and off of your guidance and not my own. I pray that you help us all to reach out to people, the ones that are outside of our groups, the ones that may seem a little unusual or odd. You love them too. We're all equals at your table. I pray for all of us to have the strength, the courage, and the tenacity and persistence to do that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.